My name is DJ Kerr, and I get the honor this morning to preach through Matthew 14. We're finally out of Matthew 13, which we know that there's a lot of gems in Matthew 13, so that's why the elders crawled through 13. So we're excited. I know last week we started Matthew 14. Matt Fisher got us into the chapter. I, don't, I do not know many of you here. I look forward to getting to know you. They've invited me with a blessing to be able to come up here and teach amongst the many men of elders that have been up here this summer. It's been a joy to me to see the men, some men of our church come up here and teach, to see God use their gifts of teaching as well as the other gifts that they have to bring God's word to us, and I'm blessed to be a part of that this morning. Just a quick recap through Matthew 13, through Matthew 14. Jesus has been on mission, teaching of the kingdom of God. We're aware that he's been using parables as a means to bring the truth of the kingdom. Jesus was also kicked out of his hometown. Has anyone ever felt like they've been kicked out of their hometown? So at the end of Matthew 13, we saw that Jesus um, was not welcome there anymore. And shortly after that, Jesus' cousin, John, is martyred. And Jesus was informed by John's disciples of this martyrdom. Our theme today, picking up in Matthew 14, 13 through 21, is redeeming manna. And I was asking my children on the way in the service today if they knew what the word manna meant. And yes, we're referring to the bread from heaven when God's people were wandering through the desert that God provided for them. And we're going to see how Jesus is the bread of life today, how he is the good shepherd. And he's calling all of us Today is the Sabbath day to lie down in the green grass. There's different seasons that he's calling us to lie down in green grass. I don't know about you guys, but there are many times where I'm not willing to lie down in that green grass. Or once I do, I'm getting up pretty quickly, not getting the fullness of what our good shepherd has to offer. We also see that God is our ultimate provider and that we have an invitation to participate in his abundance. There's God's sovereignty in everything, and there's also our responsibility. We're going to see an example of that today. I've had a long runway to prepare for this sermon today, and I know many of you have taught up here, many of you have taught in other settings, many of you have led Bible studies, and, I, and you hear this from just about every teacher, right, that, the, that God did a lot of work on the one preparing for that teaching, and that's definitely been the case for me, recognizing my deficiencies that when God puts manna in my hands, whether that's time, talents, or treasures, how I do not steward that well often. So the heart of the matter today is redeeming manna to reignite a passion for God through generosity to the nations. Many of us have been out of Primeville some of us have not been out of this nation, but when we do leave this nation, we recognize that there's a lot of image bearers across this globe that lack physical needs and, and, and God's word. So this abundance, I think, speaks much to us about being a distribution center versus a, a storehouse. The background here in, in Matthew 14, I'm going to be very brief here because I want to get to the heart of the matter, but... The account of feeding to the 5,000 is recorded in all four Gospels. 
I think there's, I've boiled it down to maybe three different viewpoints on this section of scripture. Some might see it as a tall tale. Some see it that Jesus is a scam artist. And the other is that this actually is a super, supernatural work of God. And I know in this room, those that might be viewing online or listening to this later might have a viewpoint in, in one of those three viewpoints. And you can probably guess, and I'm up here to make the claim that this is a supernatural work of God. We have just a couple of different proofs of, um, proofs, proof points I'm going to touch on really quick. The historical accuracy of this section of Scripture. We know that Christianity is a historical religion that took place in real times with real people and real events. This story was corroborated by many witnesses. And we have the four authors of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that share this story, that corroborate together. And I would look at the Gospels. We often have overlapping accounts of the same events. And some may wonder why we see the same elements in those stories, but maybe slightly different components in there. And I would liken that to a crime scene when you have maybe multiple detectives or you have multiple law enforcement officers that show up to a crime scene. They're all investigating. They're all seeing the same, perhaps same core elements, but they have different viewpoints on it. They've interviewed different people. But finally, when that report gets put together, um, you're going to have slightly different elements in there as well. However, all four accounts affirm that this, that this event took place in the spring. In this desolate place of Israel, I've never been there, but I, I've seen pictures and I envision lots, much of Israel being very, very desolate, that we actually have green grass that Mark points out, which is another proof point that when we, as we'll see, that there's green grass in a desolate place that this took place in the springtime. We have scientific accuracy. I'm probably going down some rabbit trails that might take a little, I won't spend too much time on, but we have scientific accuracy that we know that creation needs a creator. So in the supernatural work, if you are not convinced that the creator of the universe created you, then we have some deep praying, obviously, that we, we need to do. But we know something cannot start from nothing. And we know that the Big Bang needs a big banger. So if God created everything, including you, including your soul, he can certainly multiply resources before him. Biblical accuracy, the story of God from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, is full of supernatural works of God. So this is no surprise. We also see that it's also consistent with the compassion, provision, and abundance are consistent attributes of God. So again, what Jesus does here is not a surprise to us. This is consistent with his nature and the cons and consistency of God's nature, the Trinity, throughout the, all of the Scripture. So let's get into this. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray... Lord, that the children of God in, in here today and that, that are listening or watching, Lord, that their souls would be refreshed. Father, I know I need a refreshing of my soul. I know I need, we need to stop, let go, and let you, Father. We pray for those that are being stirred, that are being wooed by you, Father, that you would continue to stir their souls. Father, maybe a seed's planted, maybe it's water, that ultimately you bring life, Lord. We pray for life today. And for those that are scorners of God, 
Lord, we pray for them also. We love them just as Jesus did. We pray that, that, they're, that they would recognize that they have an eternal soul. Maybe that would be a starting point for them. Lord, we pray that your name would be hallowed this morning as it already has been in the worship of spirit, now in the worship of word. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are in verses 15, I'm sorry, 13 through 15. We see the compassion of God. So Matthew 14, 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So we, we have seen Jesus face set like Flint on mission, gets kicked out of his hometown, cousins martyred. He withdraws. But what we see in the other gospel accounts, that his disciples go with him. So he gets this bad news. I'm just envisioning that they want, he needs, wants some respite. The disciples were also just returning from their practicum. Thank you, Dr. Noer, for that word. Meaning that they had been sent on a mission. They had come back, and they're sharing with Jesus what, what was going on in the field. And Jesus wants to lead them to rest as well from their hard work. And the crowds heard of this, and they followed. They had, they, they, they had to travel a distance as they heard that Jesus was going to a certain place. And we see that Jesus ministered to them, spoke of the kingdom, healed the sick. Disciples then instruct Jesus to send the crowds a way to get food. So how does this inform us a little bit about our nature as um, image bearers? What does this tell us about man, woman? Death, the death of John very much underscores Jesus' humanity. I've been fortunate enough up to my 45, 40, I'm 45 and a half years old. Thank you, Ed. And I have not, fortunately at this point, experienced the death of it, someone that's close and dear to me. I know that it's around the corner. So what I've viewed, and I know many of you have, many of you may even in this season of life be going through a, a morning of that, and, and Dr. Noor, again, um, very helpful here as a hospice physician, very much affirmed that Jesus had a common response when we lose the loved one, we want to withdraw. So again, this underscores the humanity of Jesus. This is what grief looks like, withdrawing from life. Again, if you've experienced that, I'm sure you can relate to that. We also see that men, women, people are drawn to Jesus. Some desire what Jesus can give them. Oh, that's the guy that does the amazing things. I want, so I'm going to go see if I can get. Some like the moral teachings of Jesus. I have itchy ears, right? What's, I, I, it makes me feel good. There might be some of us in here. I like the moral teachings of Jesus there, but obviously that's not um, all we want to get from Jesus. But that's where it starts and stops for some in that crowd and, and, and even in here. Some have heard of Jesus' signs and wonders and want to see him in person, this guy that's doing these miraculous things. Are these things real? And some are actually are disciples, while others are being wooed by the Spirit to eventually become children of God. And how do I know there's... 
you know, all, all these t- types of folks and their, their different motivations. Because when you have 5,000 people plus family, five to 20,000 people, I'm sure there's mixed motivations in that. We also see f- from a, a human perspective that the disciples actually show some compassion for the crowds. After spending some time with Jesus, they actually recognize, wow, these people are probably hungry. <laughs> That's a good starting point. When, when one of my children show you know, a little glimpse of compassion. It's like, wow, yes, great, right? But we don't necessarily have the full compassion of God, right? Because we're still a work in progress as children of God, right? We're being sanctified. So that's a, that's a great, good job, disciples. Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. So we know that when we're born of God, there's a process, and Paul is just reminding the, the church, which is a good reminder for us, that sanctification, just one degree, one degree uh, glory to glory, one, one degree at a time. Now, what does this inform us about God in this section here of compassion? That, again, we see the, we, we see the humanity of Christ, we really see the fullness of Christ, 100% man and 100% God, and we're going to see more of that as we work our way through here. We see God is a relational God. We see very frequently through Scripture and, and Jesus' walk on this earth, he commonly communed with the rest of the Trinity. He, spent, he had a lot of quiet time, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of prayer time, um, and spent a lot of time in solitude. We, we also see that God is a compassionate God. We see that in verse... Um, 14, that he had compassion, he healed their sick. So he's having, this, I'm just envisioning, he's having this quiet time. I'm, having, I, I'm relating that to my uh, version of that, and, and I'm sitting outside on the deck and having my quiet time and with the Lord, prayer reading, and uh, my wonderful family comes out. And how many times do I say, up, oh, stop, I'll be in there, you know, I'll help out with this when I'm done communing with God? What do we see Jesus here? We see him go right to the needs of the people. We see him set aside his personal needs, maybe his human needs, for the needs of the rest of humanity. So what can we draw away from this section here? If Jesus consistently communes with the Father and the Holy Spirit, again, how much do we need to? I have seasons, I'm sure you have seasons, of you're in your rhythms of, of uh, Sabbath rhythms and you're in your, in your discipline rhythms up and there are seasons where life gets busy and we let go of that a little bit. Um, so if he needs it that much, I would encourage all of us that we, we, should, we know that we need that as well. Again, we know that God is a compassionate God. He's a God of provision, abundance. He's not a God of scarcity. John three sixteen through 17, most of us know three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that who should ever call his name should not perish but have everlasting life. God gave, he's a giver. And why did he give? Because whether we're scorners of God, whether we're skeptics of God, or whether we're children of God, we fall short of a moral standard. If you do not believe in a creator, but you have moral standards, where do those moral standards come from? And those in here that are saved by the grace of God still are sinners. The only difference is they've recognized that they're not the God of the universe, that the creator is. They've given him his crown back and have repented that they violated those moral standards and that recognizing that his son paid the price for your sins and, and, and those that would call on the name of Jesus to be, 
did not have to pay the penalty of our sins. We all believe in some kind of moral standards. We all believe in righteousness and justice. Either you can pay the price or Jesus can pay the price. But, and for us that are in Christ right now, we can't forget about John 3, 17. Jesus says he did not come to condemn the world because the world is already condemned. I don't know about you, but I, I, my, my turn or burn wants to get going and I don't want, I want to condemn. And I know it's a delicate balance of grace and truth, loving but not affirming. I understand that. But again, we have a God that is a compassionate God. And I, I think we need to be, just be aware of when we do want to condemn. I think it's because we have scarcity mindsets and more than that. But. So as we move on to the next section, verses 16 through 18, we see the provision of God. So Matthew 14, 16, beginning verse 16. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. So now we're going to start to see the provision of God meeting some physical needs. Verse 16, we see Jesus commands the disciples to feed the crowd. I am guilty of some poor hospitality sometimes, <laughs> and that is, hey, we're going to have a family over, or we're going to host this, and I'm or asking my wife, who that's a gift of hers, is hospitality, and going above and beyond in the beginning, and preparing and on the back, and I'm like, all right, how can we narrow this down, and and, and she's like, they're probably going to be hungry, so we should have a meal available. So again, sometimes our compassion and our humanity can only go so far. Now he's, we saw the compassion of the disciples, but now they're being tested, right? Jesus says, you go feed the crowd. But the disciples have a scarcity mindset. Then Jesus, verse 18, commands them to bring the food to him. We know that Jesus loves testing us, and he's te testing these disciples, in John 6, 6, he says he was testing them knowing what he would do. So when, we have, when we're at those crossroads, we need not run away from that test or to know that we are being tested at times. And that's a good moment. As I hope my boys would say, we would find that as an opportunity to pause, pray, and ponder to go from the flesh to the spirit. Now, in John 6, 9... Another account of feeding the 5,000 here. We see that the disciples find a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish. So we see where the resources come from. <laughs> I liken that to childlike faith. I'm sure we can all relate to children or grandchildren. Us as adults, we know what's going on in the world. <laughs> we follow the headlines Here's mine. Here's a little bit that I can give where my daughter might be. Let's, let's, you know, let's give it all away because she's not concerned about where she's going to get her food tomorrow. Where us as adults, we're thinking about the budget, we're thinking about the job, we're thinking about the shaky economy. Where is it going to come from? So we see this childlike faith that is beautiful from this child, this boy, to provide his resources. I'm assuming that's all he has. Or maybe it's from his family, maybe he collected it, I don't know, but they, they get these resources 
the, the, the bread and the fish from this child. Again, it's potentially all he had. Um, he gave this ultimately from him to God for the benefit of the crowd. Here's all I got, God, or Jesus, or not just for his benefit, but for the benefit of, of the crowd. So this section here on this provision of God, what does this inform us about humanity? We know that from our own experiences and observations that man can be obedient to God when Jesus is the object of our faith and when we're spirit-filled. So I know in those moments or seasons when my wife Brenda is, is sharing with me that we're going to be hosting and and if I'm more spirit-filled, that's a joy to me. If, it's more, if I'm more in the flesh, it is more of a, okay, here's the list that I need to do to get, done, get things done, um, but not out of the right heart. We see that when commanded to bring Jesus the food, that the disciples, they, they obeyed that. We don't see any arguing going on there. We also see that man is a co-creator here. So we ultimately know that God is the creator of that bread and the fish, but someone had to harvest that bread and that fish. Someone had to do some work, just like when God put Adam in the garden, one of the first things he told him to do was to go to work. Work is not part of the curse, <laughs> as the thief wants us to believe, which we'll get to later. That we are co-creators, and we, we are called ultimately to be fruitful and multiply, both physically and, and spiritually. What is this section inform us about God? We, we see that God tests our faith which should strengthen our faith. You know, James, the book of James, um, oftentimes referred to as like the, a wisdom book in the New Testament, um, reminds us that the testing of our faith produces endurance. I don't know about you guys, but I could use a little bit of endurance. And one of my weaknesses among many is, uh, in temptations is hastiness and slothfulness. And if there's a challenge before me and I'm in a flesh moment, I want to figure out how to get around that challenge <laughs> rather than being, versus being filled with the Spirit and going, all right, let, let's see what God's got in store with us. I know he's going to use this as a means to continue to f form me. Verse 17 shows us that God is a God of abundance. In Exodus 16, we see manna from heaven during the 40 years in the desert. Why is this... Uh, sermon um, titled Redeeming Manna because I look at manna as something that God ultimately provided to his people that they did not, well they needed to harvest, they had to go out and collect it, but ultimately it was a pure provision from God while they wandered in the, in the desert for, for, for 40 years and, and we're going to talk a little bit more here in a moment about manna, I'm referring that to yes, the provision for us physically and again, we, we do participate in that. We also um, look at manna as the time that God's allotted to us, as well as the talents that he's allotted. Oh, those are gifts from God to be steward for him. Verse 18, we see, again, we see that God is the ultimate provider. Philippians 4.19, we know that God will supply all of our needs, not all of our wants and wishes, but all of our needs. So I want to pause for a moment. I want to share a story with you um, of a family that most of us probably know in here who received some compassion, provision, and abundance of God while in, a, in the crosshairs of challenging economic times, political scandals, and a carnal culture, and God seemed to be nowhere. And this story takes place 
in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. If you want to do a little Bible gymnastics and warm up your fingers, feel free. 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Again, we're, we're focusing on the provision of God here with that in mind. Now, when the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in your house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were, were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. So again, I think many of you are, are probably familiar with that story, and maybe even familiar with that type of story in real life. That that is a, right, a real-life scenario. We have a godly man here. Uh, there's some debt on the family. The kids are at risk of debtor's prison, which is common in that culture. Elisha, a man of God, helps, but he starts with a question. Jesus is a master of asking questions as well. We see God's sovereignty and supernatural abundance at work in here with the overflow of oil. We also see community love and support. So again, we're seeing the, the functions here of God's sovereignty, people at work being a part of that. Man's responsibility, the sons went out to the community, hey, we need some jars the faithful steps that they were commanded by this man of God, and they went to work. And we see the bills were paid off, and there, there was excess. So again, a common story that most of us are familiar with, but also a real story that either we're going to go through, more than likely at some point, or um, we, we've been through it, or we've seen others be a part of it. Again, God's beautiful economy of his sovereignty, his abundance, his compassion and then also working through people. I just think that's a, a beautiful story. So what are some implications and applications from this section here that I think most of us would agree, and I'd more, be more than happy to talk after if, if you see this differently, that money and possessions are the biggest competitor to God. And again, when I'm speaking money, I'm also speaking manna, just like stuff, and even time, and even our talents to use for ourselves. The Bible contains over 2,000 verses on money and possessions, 40% of the parables Jesus speaks about money, he's obviously using that as an example for a kingdom, um, for, for kingdom revelations. But again, he's using something that he knows is a competitor to our hearts. And again, I'm, I'm liking this idea of money to manna provision right now kind of for our physical selves. And if you want to go to 1 Timothy 6, we're going to um, digest a couple verses there. 1 Timothy 6. And many of you have probably heard 
I want, to, I want to test us here. Is money the root of all evil? No. What is, what is, what is the root of all evil that Timothy... The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Exactly, yes. If I knew my Bible better, I'd probably be able to get the first Timothy faster. So, here we go. So, 1 Timothy 6, there's several sections in here. So, again, 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We know that money is also a, it's a tool, it's a test, and as well as it's a testimony. So, I think in the church, we can have two different extremes. We can have asceticism, get rid of it all, and we can also have the prosperity gospel, and I'm not preaching either. I'm saying there's some kind of miraculous work here in the middle, and I think Paul does a good job. First um, Timothy six seventeen through nineteen. I think he does a good job here in balancing this out. First Timothy six seventeen through nineteen. Paul says, "As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty." I would I would think that most of us in here would see ourselves as rich compared to the rest of the world. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. He doesn't say don't have them, but don't put your hope in them but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Again, money is a tool, it's a test, and it's a testimony. And we... um, And if we've had bad testimonies of manna... Time, talents, and treasures, God's grace is sufficient. <laughs> Sometimes we need to repent and, 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 um, and be in prayer about how to use our time, talents, and treasures going forward. Now, again, I'm using manna in a positive sense, God's provision for us. There's also the word that we hear in the Bible called mammon. And very simply put, if I could hopefully somewhat accurately define mammon, is really it's a satanic influence to use money, resources, and possessions as a replacement of God. So we're going to kind of jump back in and out of those two as we go through here. First Timothy 6.6 6 also tells us that godliness and contentment is great gain. I know all of us are looking for great gains, but we know that holiness and being satisfied in God is the best thing to have. So what are some practical things we can do at this crossroads of um, provision as God is providing for us? Um, we need to recognize that we can pra- pause, pray, and ponder and recognize that um, there's really only four uses to resources. And, and I usually define this with money, but again, I can think it can be with our time and talents and treasures as well as we can live, give, owe, or grow. There's only four uses of possessions. Our society says, live while you can, right? Maybe pay your debts. Don't save anything because we, we, we got to have the fun now and uh, we certainly aren't to give, <laughs> right? It, it, that's for me. That, that's, that's the big lie of the thief. So I think that this is a, a good moment to examine how we are using mammon or manna or money. Are we using it for God's glory or are we using it for our own glory? And I would confess here before you all that more commonly I use it for my glory and not God's glory. So here's some questions to consider asking to test our hearts, knowing that behavior flows from the heart. Psalm 24.1 would challenge us to ask the question, do we believe that God owns it all? 
your time, talents, treasures, relationships? Does he own it all? Paul reminded the Philippian church in Philippians 4, um, this idea of contentment. Do I believe that what I have right now is enough? How much is enough? I'd love to have that conversation. Do I believe that I demonstrate my faith in my finances, on my calendar, with the gifts that God's given me? Hebrews 11 speaks a bit about that. And James shares a little bit more in James 3 about wisdom. Do I believe that God's wisdom is true and available on how to steward the manna that God, this time, this limited time, teach me to number my days, right? We, we, I think that's Psalm 88. <laughs> um, talents and treasures. So here's some just practical things that Brent and I are being tested on but is to seek the Lord on a lifestyle cap. That doesn't mean we work less. That means we work harder because whatever we put our hands on, we work under the Lord, right? So if he provides a certain amount and we've, we've come to a convicted lifestyle cap, there's that much more for his kingdom. Same with our calendar, same with our talents. And oftentimes I'll have people ask me how much to save, how much to give, and, and I've come to the conclusion a wise Discipler shared with me this idea of give like the widow, the poor widow, and save like Joseph. We know the widow gave sacrificially, and we know that Joseph saved with a purpose. And again, that purpose was not just for him or even the nation of Egypt, it was for their neighbors as well as when the famine came. And we're going to move on to that last section here, verses 19 through 21. We're going to get a little bit more into this idea of the abundance of God. So back to Matthew. 14, 19 through 21. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken, full of the broken pieces left over. And these who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So now we see the abundance of God. So as I pointed out earlier, some observations again from the section that in the gospel account in Mark and Mark 6:39, one of the unique things in my um, was finally revealed to me by the help of my good friend Dr. Michael Noer, as he we we're in this verse 39, Jesus commanded the crowds to sit down on the green grass. DJ, how is this? Verse different than the other three. <laughs> What's different in here? And it took me a while. Finally, oh, green. Sit down in the green grass. When we go out here and we see the brown grass and we see green grass somewhere, what might that tell us about that area with, with green grass? There's probably a water source somewhere, or maybe it's spring. Again, going back to this idea of the historical accuracy of this account. But Jesus commanded the crowds to sit down in green grass. That sounds pretty nice to me right now. I'm sure it does for you as well. Jesus prayed over the available food and resources. Again, he communed with the rest of the Trinity. Jesus gave the resources back to the disciples to hand out to the crowd. I didn't hear Jesus or the disciples say, hey, we should go see if Caesar has some handouts for us, right? This, or this uh, child brought resources, perhaps from their family. Go to the disciples. Disciples are obedient. Give them to Jesus. He prays. And he gives them back to the disciples. So again, we see this beautiful picture of God's economy that's still at work today of God's provision with man involved with that. 
Verse 20 shows us that they all ate, they all were satisfied, and there were leftovers. What a great, what a great meal. And this makes a great children's uh, church story too, right? Feeding the 5,000. And, and uh, it is a great story for our, our children up there to, to know this, but there's so much more here for us as well than, than just in the children's church. Someone estimated that there's 5,000 to 20,000 people were present. That's a lot of people. I don't know if many of you have probably been in a football or basketball arena somewhere for a sporting event or maybe even a church event, and, and that's, a lot of, that's a lot of people. Some insight to humanity here. So we, most of us in here, children of God, have a choice to lay down in that green grass or to remain on desolate ground. So again, today's the Sabbath day. On the drive-in, asking my kids, which, which we do to honor the Sabbath day. I think Bo said to keep it holy. <laughs> yes, Bo, we want to keep it holy. But what are, what are ways that we can keep it holy and, and find rest in the Lord with our family? Man, um, Disciples participated in God's provision of the crowd. Again, that point keeps surfacing over and over. And man was satisfied after receiving God's provision. We also see that Jesus, what are, what are some insightful insight here about, again, about the nature of God? We see that Jesus is the good shepherd. And the shepherd is mentioned over 40 times in the Bible and we're going to reference Psalm 23 here. So if you have your Bibles available, again, this is just the name of Psalm 23, probably some, most of you probably have it memorized. We see that in Psalm 23, 1 through 3, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides still waters. He restores my soul. He leads. Sorry, I lost my spot. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He is our good shepherd that desires us to be with him and to lie down in the green grass and say, hey, it's okay. That loss, the loss of that loved one, yes, grieving is natural withdrawing is natural we're not supposed to experience death it's natural still waters for now we know those waters change later on in in, in the story that we're not going to get to today but um verse 20 it shows us that god is a god of abundance which i want to point back to psalm 23 verses 5 through 6 you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He prepares a table for us. Verse 21, God is a God of abundance. And again, he wishes that none should perish. The world's already condemned. And in verse 4 of Psalm 23, the psalmist David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They come for me. And some of us either have just gotten out of or going into or in or will be going into a season of walking through a valley of the shadow of death. And we can either have the object of our faith on our toes, on the world headlines, or on Jesus. He's there with us 
commands us to lie down in the green grass at times. It's our choice to lie down in there. So as an illustration, I'll give a, an, um, an example here of this idea of lying down in, in green grass, our good shepherd calling us into that. Here a week or two ago, our family was up at Walton Lake, and that's one of my favorite places to go and be in God's creation. Some of our kids were with me, and, and they were fishing, and I was uh, in my little solitude time and praying and reading through these verses and preparing for this, and it was just a, a, a great moment of time with the Lord and, and, my, and Brenda, and maybe she was coming up by herself later, but nonetheless, she was coming up. I was giving my burdens to the Lord, and, and it was just a beautiful thing, and just in a moment of like in the green grass, just a, and then Brenda arrived that day, my wife, joyfully, and she blessed us with some hard-prepared meals for the family. But here, here's the key there. Here, here's the key I want to share with you, and, and hopefully there's something here for you to reflect upon as well, that rather than staying on the green grass, I stood up, took my burdens of the world back, and then rather than sharing the beautiful fruit of the Spirit with my family, I poked them with thorns and thistles of the flesh. We can sit down in the green grass. We can stay in the green grass. <laughs> we can get up. I should have invited them into the green grass with me. But something triggered of solitude, someone coming in from the outside, just wanting to bless us, and all of a sudden I start thinking about the world and work. And, 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 but praise God for his grace and mercy and peacemaking. But just be thinking about when we're in that green grass, we should be inviting people into that with us rather than maybe just getting up and not sharing that time with them. So some implications and applications here before we conclude the matter. We're going to go over to John 10. John 10, 10 through 11. John 10, 10 through 11. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Again, we see this idea in here of Jesus proclaiming him being the good shepherd and the abundance of it. What are some ways that we can receive more of that abundance from our good shepherd? And a conviction that came on to me, and maybe some of you are feeling it as well, is recognizing that I know God owns it all. I know I need to give it all to him because it's already his. And I think the hardest thing for me to think of giving to God is not just money and possessions, but his relationships. It's family. However, what we see is when that youth and the disciples were a part of that gave the only resources to, to Jesus, we saw not only did those disciples and that child benefit from that, but the rest of the community did as well. And we know that when we love God with all we have, before we go to our spouse, we have more to offer to our spouse, right? Versus going to our spouse, then going to God. I'm only going to poke her in the, with thorns and thistles. So give it all to God, whether it's money, possessions, family, work, ministry, identity. We're having an identity crisis in our culture, if anyone's noticed. <laughs> We need to lie down in God's green grass when he commands us to. I don't know that we're always supposed to be in the green grass. 
There are times where we need to roll up our sleeves and be out working in, in, in the desolate places where everyone else is, right? So observing the Sabbath, creating Sabbath rhythms in your life over a week, quarters, a year. I, I look at sleep now, finally, as a Sabbath rhythm. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> I can go to bed. And you're working and I'm not. John 10, verse 11, we see life can be scarce. I'm on the right verse here. Actually, I think I got it backwards. I think it's 10:10 um, 10, 10 here. In regards to the thief came to steal, kill, and destroy. Verse 10:10 10, 10 here. This this idea of scarcity that our culture, the world, is letting us know that chasing the American dream is where life is at. Maybe some of you experience that. That's a big lie. Mammon tries to convince us to get ours while we can and to remain as owner of our stuff. There's lots of stuff I want to hold on to. And again, I think that, that ownership is not just physically, but it's also it's a heart posture, right? It's open hands. Lord, there, there's a need here of a, a brother, a sister, a family, uh, a ministry need. Okay, yep, you've provided these resources. Okay, you want me to consider releasing this for that. Okay, that's what it's here for. So it doesn't necessarily mean, again, asceticism, just get rid of it all. Someone's got to maintain and, and steward that for something. So remaining as owner only glorifies itself rather than God. Remaining as owner, our neighbor remains in need, and remaining as owner, it curses ourselves and those who depend upon us. I don't know if anyone in here has ever made a bad financial decision, but it does not just impact us, ourselves. It impacts our family and maybe our extended family, maybe community. So in summary here of Matthew 14, 13 through 21, we see that Jesus is the good shepherd. We see that he has infinite compassion and, that, and not condemnation. And that has been a revelation for me in the, in the last year or two or so of uh, we can love those that wear their sin on their sleeve. It does not mean that we are um, agreeing with them. It does not mean that we're affirming their, their immorality. I think the difference between some of our culture today that is wearing their sin on their sleeve versus us is, is uh, they're at least being honest and we're not sometimes, including myself. Jesus is a good shepherd. He, and he, he commands us at times to lie, lie down in the green grass. How are we going to do that today? In, in his book, uh, Richard Foster, Celebrating the Disciplines, some of you have probably read that. There's lots of others that are similar to this idea, but um, he, I've read it in this last year and he does a great job at um, kind of this progression of the inward disciplines, right? It's our quiet time, it's the Bible time, it's the solitude time, all those things that lead to um, the outward uh, disciplines, kind of like in here, public worship and, and others of that, and then ultimately celebrating together. So maybe this is a season going into the, to the fall season of, of, of reviewing how you're spending your time with the Lord. How are you communing with him? Do you need a different discipline? Do you need um, a, a different place? Do you need to mark that in your calendar um, do you need to have that solitude time once or twice a year? Um, and the answer is yes, yes, and yes. Seek the Lord on that for your, yourself and talk to an elder about you know, how they can shepherd you through that as well. Give all of God's manna back to him. God owns it all. Learn contentment and depend upon the Holy Spirit. Seek the Lord on the use of the other 90% of your calendar and checkbook. Because again, we allocate 10% of our calendar to the church and to a you know, community group and what are we doing with that other 90%? And working 
can be a form of worship as well, right? We can, we can be that light and salt, putting our hands on, work as a form of loving our, our, our neighbor. So some of it, I think, is also a heart posture. Be a distribution center of manna, again, time, talents, and treasures, rather than a storehouse. As we've seen here um, in this account, we see God's sovereignty in this. We also see man's responsibility. God is directing this. He's inviting men and women and to, to participate with him. He's inviting us to participate with him. And I see great examples of that in this room today. In the sanctuary today, there's, I'm hearing more and more stories of examples of coming into God's story to be on mission where God's given you a burden and you're using your gifts for the glory of his kingdom in this body, in the community and beyond. And we saw another great example of that with the mission family. So there's a lot of that fruit in this body now, some questions to consider pondering. You know, what is it that we believe about money and possessions or manna? About time, talents, and treasures? Are some of those ours? Does it all belong to him? The way that we currently handle manna in God's provision to us, what does it say about God and the power of the gospel in our lives? Are there areas that we don't want the gospel to come into and convict us of? If so, prayers needed, perhaps confession, perhaps an elder, perhaps a family member or a community group leader to, to pray through that. We all have areas that we have not given over complete ownership because none of us are Jesus. <laughs> so this is, this is, this is an, an encouragement for us. What do we know to be true about our good shepherd regarding manna? With the gospel truth, how can it affect our approach as stewards? So stewards, as you guys are probably envisioning, we haven't talked a lot about this idea of stewardship, is they're managing basically something that someone else owns, right? For the, for the welfare, for, from the direction of that, of that owner, what disciplines do we need to engage or re-engage in so that we are fueled? Here's the good news, guys, that you already know, but I'm going to restate that. So we are fueled by his word and the Holy Spirit to hand over manna to the good shepherd and lay down in the green grass. So we're fueled. This is not Christian, bootstrap Christianity where the responsibility falls into our power. The good news of the gospel, besides being saved from condemnation, is that we are fueled in this life, by the Spirit, in his word, to do things that we would rather not do or don't have the power to do. So in conclusion here, I'm hopeful that here that we see that God had desires that we redeem manna to reignite a passion for God through generosity to the nations. We have not discussed a whole lot about the nations beyond here. But again, if we look at Joseph and the saving and the generosity, it does, it's not just here in our church or Prineville, but it goes beyond the borders. And when, and, and when we have that focus, it glorifies God. It, it's his glory. It's the love of our neighbors and al also our abundance. His glory through fire and fragrance. I loved visiting the Grahams in South Africa to see that their value as a mission group is to seek the Lord inward and outward first to be fueled, that's the fire, to be the fragrance on, on the mission that they're on. And we're all on mission here. So his glory through love 
and mission, the great commandment and the great commission. We get that backwards, we, we, we might get wary. The love of our neighbors next door, across town, also across the globe, and our abundance. Our abundance in however he deems is best, physically and spiritually. If the worship band wants to can make their way up. Um, physically and spiritually as God deems best. This is not a prosperity gospel. Name it, claim it at all. This is given to God, laying down the green grass, trusting the good shepherd to do what he believes is best for his glory, the blessing that he wants to bless that with, but also for your abundance. Father, we... Lord, humbly come back back before you, Lord, here this morning. And Lord, I, I pray that whatever was not of you, Lord, that you would burn in the minds of those that, that are listening. Whatever is of you, Lord, I, I pray that it would be refreshing to their souls. Father, for the children of God, for those that are, are being wooed to you, Lord, I pray that it stir their soul more and, and those that uh, are, are more of a a scorner of you, Lord. I pray that it would disturb them a bit to start asking questions. And, and, um, and I pray that we would not bring condemnation to those that are not of you because the world is already condemned, Lord. And as we go into this sacred time of communion, that we get to take this holy bread that, that, that is of the good shepherd, Lord, I, I pray that we would come to the table those that are of you, please come to the table here in a moment. Go get your children in a moment if you'd like them to be a part of that. Lord, I just pray that we would have a pause, pray and ponder moment, Lord, that as we take the bread, that we know that you are the bread of life and that the bread would remind us of your broken body on the cross, not just for your glory, but, but also for, the, for, for, for all those that are saved by your sacrifice. As we take the cup, representing your perfect righteous blood, Lord. We know that our blood is not righteous by itself, that we are covered in yours to be made righteous, Lord. I, I just pray that we take this as a sacred moment, Lord, and, and, and we know that those that are not of you at the moment, that they, they should not take communion at this time, and they just pray that their hearts would be stirred to find an elder after service to discuss the things of the kingdom, the things that they're being stirred. Um, we love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.